All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. Y'all, thanks for joining us this morning as we worship together. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead Church, and um, I truly am thankful that uh, you're joining us online. If you're watching on Facebook or over on Vimeo, I would encourage you to go ahead and and connect with our social media, like our Facebook page, our Twitter, our, our Instagram. We push out information every week. We, we try to keep people connected. We push out important information. There's also great ways for you to connect with others in our community. This morning, we are in our third week of our series, looking at the armor of God. And, uh, and part of the reason I chose this passage for this time is I think it is just as relevant to us today as it was to the Ephesians in the first century, we live in a cultural battleground, right? Politically, uh, we're right before a national election. I mean, we're, we're a politically driven society anyway, and it only gets nastier in the months leading up to a national election, right? Socially, um, we're filled with unrest. We're, we're, as a nation, struggling through this, this kind of next stage of evolution and the civil rights movement and, and, and reckoning of our past impacting our present, and that creates a tremendous amount of strife religiously. And I'm not just talking about different religions um, misunderstanding, attacking uh, each other. I'm, I'm talking about even inside Christianity itself. There's a battle within evangelicalism uh, to what it, about what it even means to be an evangelical Christian. What, who, who gets to define it, and, and, and how does it relate to the current world, right? We are surrounded by battles. But our passage makes it clear that, that even though we're surrounded by these battles and they're very real, as important as they are, they are not the true battle. And in fact, we're going to end up making some serious mistakes if we end up thinking these other battles are the primary battle, right? Our primary battle is not cultural. It's not social. It's not religious. Our primary battle is spiritual. And the people with whom we disagree and often disagree vehemently, they're not our enemies, Right? Our enemies are the powers and the principalities and the cosmic forces over this present darkness. Right, the, the people we disagree with, they're not our battlefield, they're our mission field. Because the true battle isn't to win any of these other battles. The true mission is to love. That's what winning looks like, right? And, and we saw this last week when we looked at, at the, the first command in this passage, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, right? There's only one way to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and that's to find our strength from being rooted and grounded in His love, and then to exercise our power for the benefit of others in love, right? And all the while, in the midst of all of this, our enemy is trying to trick us and seduce us to embrace selfishness, fear, hatred, independence from God. There's only one way we're going to be able to stand against the schemes of our enemy. There's only one way we're going to be able to withstand the withering heat of battle in this evil day, and that is if we put on the full armor of God. And the first piece of the full armor of God is the belt of truth. Because what you believe to be true determines what armor you wear and what battles you fight. So let's look again at these opening verses uh, of Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, just to kind of refresh our memory. It's where we've been sitting uh, over the last two weeks. Paul says this in, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so this morning, we're going to be looking at really what is, is in many ways, this strange metaphor of, um, of, of putting on the full armor of God, God right? This, this image of, of wearing ancient armor, um, and, and, and walking around, it's, it's honestly a little bit, it feels a little bit childish to us if we're, if we're honest, right? This is a passage that is, that is often kept in the kids' space, right? It's taught in the kids' space way more than it's taught in, in the adult space. It's often in the youth room, not, not in the adult uh, Bible study room, right? I used to love teaching this passage back in the day when I used to do youth camps and, and I would get the kids together because it gave me an excuse to pull out my Roman sword and, uh, and, and show it to them, right? The, the length and the weight and, and the, the, the little ridge right in the middle so that, and I won't explain what the ridge in the middle is for. And, uh, and I always thought it'd be so cool to pull out my sword and swing it and show them. It was never as cool as I thought it was. Um, and I think that's probably because I was never as cool as I hoped I would be. Um, but there you go, right? I loved teaching this in youth spaces because you could get a little silly with it, right? You could actually like, like it's, it's a very physical, metaphorical look at this truth. Um, but listen, the, the, the Roman guards who would have been wearing this armor surrounded the first century Christians every day, right? In Ephesus, in Corinth, in, in, right, in Jerusalem, all over Rome, this would have been a very, very familiar sight to them. So, um, so in, in bringing this up, Paul's not, not hearkening back to, to some medieval, you know, which would have been still future for him, but, but he's not looking back to some romantic time when they were armored. He's talking about something they would have seen every day, something that was actually part of, of daily life and they would have understood. Now, this brings us to a second question. In a passage where he's admonishing us to walk in God's power of love, why is he militarizing the metaphor, right? When he's talking about be, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might, right? Bear your strength, carry your power out in, in love, rooted and grounded in love, acting in love. Why militarize the metaphor? Um, in the ancient world, armor, Armor wasn't just seen as an issue of warfare. It wasn't just seen as an issue of defense. It was actually seen as um, an issue of identity. Um, armor was personalized. And, and different famous soldiers had different armor. And uh, the more well-known the warrior, the more well-known his, his armor, right? And, and honestly, the more power his armor carried when, when a famous warrior stepped onto the battlefield and people saw him step on because they saw his armor and they knew who it was, that could in fact turn the, the tide of, of an entire uh, battle, right? In the classic tale, the Iliad, which I'm sure you all studied at some point in your life, we read about the Trojan War when, when the Greeks assaulted Troy to free Helen, and, and um, it's one of those epic battles that is recounted. And, and one of the greatest Greek warriors, in fact, one of the greatest warriors ever recounted in, in literature is a guy named Achilles. Achilles was um, a terrifying warrior with the temperament of a middle school diva. And so he is there in this battle for Troy, 
and uh, he got tweaked about something, right? Something just kind of set him off, and, and, and he got offended, and so he went and pouted in his tent while the battle's raging, and, and the Trojans are overcoming the Greeks and, in fact, are threatening to burn their ships. And, um, and so uh, Patroclus, who, who was his good friend, uh, was actually raised with him. It was like a brother to him, uh, an older brother. He came to him, and he pleaded with Achilles and, and was like, um, you know, you got to do something. You got to do something because we're about to get totally, totally destroyed. And, and so what he did is he allowed Patroclus to wear his armor. He said, go out and, and fight in my armor. Go ahead. And so Patroclus went out in Achilles' armor, and he ends up killing 53 enemies. It completely turns the tide of, of the battle, right? Because he's fighting in Achilles' armor, and he's fighting in Achilles' strength. He takes on his identity. Now, it didn't end well for him because, well, the Greek gods aren't very cool, and, um, and they themselves often act like middle school divas. But um, the point still stands that, that, um, that the armor isn't just about defense, right? The armor is about identity. Patroclus fought in the name and in the spirit of Achilles. When Paul admonishes us to wear the full armor of God, he is admonishing us to take on an identity that is ours because God has given it to us, right? He is, he is warning us that there is no way we can stand in this battle against our enemy, against these withering forces of this evil day, unless we have a clear sense of our identity in God. See, what we believe to be true about ourselves, about the world, and about God, all identity issues, all, all related to how we see ourselves in connection, not only in ourselves, but in connection to everyone else, how we see ourselves will determine if we can stand. And this is why Paul begins by admonishing us to put on the belt of truth. Okay, so let's look at the next verse in our passage, next two verses, verses 13 and 14, where, uh, where Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. All right, so the belt in, in Roman armor uh, was not just a strap of leather that went around, around your waist, right? Remember, they didn't wear pants like we wear and shirts like we wear. They, robe, they wore robes, and, 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 and this belt uh, was a critical piece of Roman armor. It was the first thing you put on um, because it is what actually gave you freedom of movement, and then it became an anchor for the rest of the armor, right? So in, in the old King James Bible, there are these verses that say, gird up your loins, right? Gird up your loins, which is such a funny little phrase that means absolutely nothing to us. We're not quite sure what girding is, and we don't know where our loins are. And so um, it is helpful to remember that, that during this period of time, they wore robes. And robes were incredibly inconvenient on a battlefield, right? If you needed to run, if you needed to act, if you needed to climb, you didn't need robes, right? And so what they would do is they would, they would take these robes and they would pull them up between their legs and then they would anchor them in place like a, like a pair of gym shorts, right? And, and so the belt was critical for this girding to give them freedom of movement. So the first thing they put on was this belt because it, it anchored it all and, and allowed to give them freedom of movement. But then that harness actually becomes the anchoring point for the rest of the armor. So the rest of the armor you put on anchors to this belt. It has to be the first thing that you put on. If, if, you, don't, if you don't put on 
the belt here, you can't put on the rest of the armor, right? So if you're going to put on the whole armor of God, you have to start here, the belt of truth. Now, obviously, he's being metaphorical, right? There's not a magical belt of truth out there floating around that only a few of us get. He's, he's talking about the need we have to have truth at the center of our being, at the core of, of everything else we put on about ourselves, right? We're talking about capital T truth, not just a truth, not just my truth, but what is genuinely, authentically true. We need truth at the core of our being to free us and equip us. The belt of truth is the anchor for our armor, and whatever we put here, whatever truth we put close to our heart, whatever truth is at the core of, of, of what we clothe ourselves with, will determine everything else about us. Let me give you an illustration so that you can see how this works. My, my father-in-law is a bit of a prankster. Uh, I always loved that about him. Um, and he used to work at a factory in Kentucky, and, and um, they worked very, very hard. He was a, a welder, and, and um, but they have a lot of downtime, and, and, you know, especially in these overnight shifts, they, they had a little bit of time to get into trouble, right? So this is back in the day before punking was punking, right? It was just pranking, but he was the original punker. And so there was a guy in, in the factory who got a, a new truck, and he had done all the research about this truck, and he kept talking about this truck, and they were so sick of hearing about this truck. And then he finally went and chose the truck. He ordered it from the manufacturer exactly how he wanted it. He waited until it was delivered, and, 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 then, and then every single day when he came in, he was giving reports about this truck and updates about this truck. And so my father-in-law and a group of friends decided to punk him. And so what they did is every night they started going out with a, a can of gas and they added gas to his tank. And so pretty soon he's coming in and he is just giddy. He is smiling from ear to ear. He's like, I don't know what happened, but my truck was supposed to get good gas mileage. It's getting great gas mileage. I'm getting like 40, 45 miles to the gallon. I have no idea how this is possible, right? He's contacting the dealership. He's contacting the manufacturer, talking about how exceptional his truck is and, and, and why it's so unique. And they let this go on for weeks, right? For weeks, they go out every single night and put gas into his gas tank until they don't. And in fact, they do the opposite. They start going out and they start siphoning gas out of his gas tank. Not all of it, just enough. And so not only is his gas mile is dropping to normal, it's dropping like, like eight miles, 10 miles to the gallon, which is way below what it's supposed to be getting for highway driving. And he's freaking out. He's like, I knew there was something wrong with my truck. I knew it. And so he's contacting the dealership and he's contacting the manufacturer and, and demanding that they give him a refund on his truck and, and they replace it. Um, all right. So not only is that a hilarious story, because my father-in-law is, is hilarious, uh, it is incredibly insightful. See, what you believe to be true controls what you do. What you believe to be true controls what armor you put on, what battles you think are worth fighting, and how you think you're supposed to fight them. What you believe to be true defines everything else about you. So here's the challenge. We're supposed to put on capital T Truth first thing we're supposed to put on about ourselves, right? What God says is true. What he's revealed about us and about himself, that's supposed to be the core of, of who we are, right? But here's the challenge. When you believe a lie, you have no idea it's a lie. 
How are you supposed to know if it's a lie if you believe it's a lie? When you're deceived, you're deceived. That's the nature of being deceived. You don't know. You think it's true. You think that, that you're acting in accordance with what is true, right? You can't see it because it's deceitful. So how do we put on truth? Right? Do we just flip to relativism and say, well, since I can't know something's true, therefore it can't be true, and I'm just not sure, and so I'm just going to settle for my truth? And Listen, when we're talking about putting on the belt of truth, we're not talking about you needing to know everything that's true. I'm not saying that the belt of truth is, is doing your homework and making sure you know everything that's true, right? That's impossible. The key isn't to know everything that's true. The key is to know what is most importantly true. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of who God is, what he's done, and what that tells us. The gospel is the one truth that has the ability to expose every lie. Even if we believe other lies, if the gospel truth is at the core, uh, closest to who we are, most influential about what we do and who we are, we're going to avoid acting in ways that are harmful because there are secondary lies we, we believe, right? The gospel is the one truth that has the ability to, to expose every lie and lead us into, um, into proper behavior, proper love, right? It really does act like a belt or a harness. It frees our movement and keeps us getting tripped up. Now, this is important for some of you because some of you feel like you can't act until you know everything that's true. And in a time like this, when there's so much dust, I've heard this over and over again, who am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to know? There's conflicting experts, there's conflicting voices, there's conflicting, conflicting statistics, and, and so you get analysis paralysis, right? There's battle, but you can't engage because, because you haven't analyzed everything. You don't understand everything. You don't think you have all the truth, and you're afraid of, of doing harm, and so you do nothing. The problem is often not doing nothing is, in fact, a form of harm. And so here's, here's what I want to free you up with. You don't have to, to know everything that's true. You just have to know the most important thing that is true because it will free you to move forward even when you don't understand everything or know everything. In fact, often you can just admit that. I don't understand everything, know everything, but I know the next step because the thing that is most true tells me what the next step is. It is always love. This protects us personally. Um, in a lot of ways, right? When we have the, the belt of truth on, one of the key ways it protects us from the schemes of the enemy is that it protects us from pride and, and, um, and from condemnation, right? We, we feel condemned when we get things wrong, and even, even more importantly, it protects us from pride when we get things right. And, uh, and as we're going to see in coming weeks, uh, it becomes the, the essential anchor for every other piece of armor. So three reasons you absolutely need to put on the belt of truth. Okay, as we wrap this up, three reasons you absolutely need to put on the belt of truth. First, it's the gospel that protects us uh, from, from the schemes of the enemy to condemn and to puff up, right? The gospel protects us from both condemnation and pride. The enemy's greatest weapon are, are lies. We know that, right? That Paul reveals that. That's the pattern of scripture. That's his greatest weapon isn't showing up like a poltergeist or, or playing a piano in an empty house or, or, you know what I'm saying, like what his greatest weapon is to get us to believe lies, right? To get us to believe that the truck is, is faulty when it's perfectly good or to get us to believe that it's trustworthy when it's absolutely not, right? If he can get us to believe lies, we'll destroy 
ourselves. We'll actually join his team um, while we're still talking about fighting for God, right? Lies about God um, that, that ultimately keep you from believing the gospel are, are like in, in the very beginning when, when he met with our first uh, mother and, and, and he said to her, um, did God really say, right? Planting seeds of doubt, planting seeds of mistrust, right? And then um, you can be like God, right? Not only can you not trust him in what he said, but, but you can't trust him in, in what he commands, right? And, and so he wants to keep us from believing the gospel. And there's two primary ways that he undercuts our experience of the gospel, right? And that is through pride and shame. Pride and shame. See, pride and shame are two totally different emotional experiences, aren't they? When I'm, when I'm full of pride, I feel great. When I'm full of pride, I feel like I'm at the top of the, of the roller coaster and I'm looking down on everybody and I feel really good about my accomplishments and I feel really good about the choices that I made and I feel really good about how I shut people down in the last argument and I feel really good about the applause that I'm getting, right? When I feel shame, I'm at the bottom of the roller coaster, right? I feel horrible. I want to hide. I don't want anyone to look at me because I said the wrong thing or, or, or I embarrassed myself or I embarrassed somebody else that I, I desperately want them to think highly of me or, or I feel like my vulnerability is exposed or my weakness is exposed, right? Pride and shame, emotionally, two very, very different experiences. Spiritually, they're the same. They're two sides of the same coin right? See, pride says, I don't need God. When we're full of pride, we can, oh yeah, I'm glad God loves me, but I don't have a deep, desperate need for the love of God, right? When I go weeks at a time without ever praying, without ever asking God to bless my plans, it's because I have pride. It's because I'm, I'm kind of like, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with God and don't really need him right now, right? That, that's that, that puffed up, and it separates me from God, it distances me from God. I don't feel like I need the love of God, so I don't draw near to the love of God. And, and all the while, I'm here in my pride, dying, becoming vulnerable, weak in ways that I don't see or even understand. Shame, on the other hand, says I don't deserve God, right? Shame causes me to pull away and, and to hide because it tells me that, that, that this God who loves would never love me because of what I've done, because of what I've said, because of the choices I've made, because I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, right? Pride puffs me up and separates me from God. Shame drives me down and separates me from God spiritually. Our enemy doesn't care whether we are puffed up in pride or being completely destroyed in shame. Literally doesn't care. Why? Because they do the same exact thing. They drive us away from God and they sideline us in the spiritual battle. We become, we're, we're distant from the Spirit of God. So when He prompts us to speak or to act, we're not, we're not listening. When He prompts us to shut up or stay, stay distant, we're not, we're not listening. We're, we're gravitating toward the things that our pride pulls us toward. We're pulling away from the things that our shame is, is pulling us away from. We're not being led by the Spirit. We are being sidelined in the true spiritual battle. Listen, the gospel protects you from both, both pride and shame. Remember, the gospel isn't good advice on how to live. That, that's a lot of people's misperceptions. The gospel is a lot of good rules to help you get a great life, and, and that's absolutely not what it is. The gospel is good news about what God has done so you can live 
right? It's not about how you live for God. It's about what God has done so that you can live in Him. It's the proclamation that, that God loved you while you were still ungodly. That Jesus died for your sins while you were still an enemy. That, that He paid for your sin while you were still in your sin. And He forgives you and sets you free, not because you're good, but in order to make you good. God doesn't love you because you've got it together. He loves you to put you together, right? The gospel is good news, not good advice. So putting on the belt of truth is not about getting your life together for God. It's not about getting your moral life or your intellectual life. or your. It's not about ordering everything for God. It's about receiving this news and believing it to be true. And it starts by recognizing that you have a God who loved you so much that he laid down his rights so you could get what you don't deserve. He laid aside his comfort so that you could receive comfort. He laid aside his privilege so that you could receive the blessings of grace, right? This is a hard but wonderful truth that humbles our pride and lifts us out of our shame, right? Jesus, you were so bad, Jesus had to die. If that doesn't humble your pride, then I don't know that you're believing the gospel. Because that's a hard truth, that our hero had to die because that's how bad our sin was, right? Our sin was so bad, Jesus had to die. That'll humble our pride. But you were so loved that Jesus gladly died for you. That'll lift you out of your shame, right? That humbles our pride. It lifts us out of our shame and sets us firmly in the humble confidence of the gospel, right? Listen, he was your substitute in death. And then he was your hero in resurrection. And this simple and profound message will protect you. It'll protect you from pride because what do you have to be proud of? What, what good in your life can you claim credit for outside of the grace of God? It's, it's all grace, right? This simple truth also protects us from shame because what do, I, what do I have to hide from? You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus loved me at my worst, right? He, he knew everything I had done. He knew everything I was going to do. And in fact, he knew everything I had imagined doing. And he still loved me anyway. Why would I ever want to love, hide from a love that sees me and still loves me. There is no condemnation for me because Jesus bore my judgment for me. The gospel, y'all, the gospel protects us from getting sidelined in the spiritual battle by our pride or by our shame. But it also protects us from getting turned around and fighting on the wrong hills, okay? So the second thing that the second reason we, we need to put on the belt of truth is this, that the gospel protects us from pursuing the wrong goals. It protects us from, from fighting on the wrong hills, right? One of the schemes of the enemy is to get us in our pride or in our shame fighting on the wrong hill, right? If he gets us pouring out our passion in the wrong battle, he's won, right? He, he's cool with that in the same way he's cool, whether we're prideful or shameful, he's cool. It doesn't even matter which side battle it is. It can be for a very, very good cause, but if we're doing it in a very, very wrong way, we're no longer fighting with the Lord. We're fighting against Him, right? The key is He, he wants to get us on the wrong hill, fighting in the wrong way. And, and listen, it's, hard, it's easy to do, right? It's hard to discern in this time because there's so much dust that gets kicked up. There's, there's so much confusion about all the issues that surround us today. It's really easy to get turned around and confused about which hill we're supposed to be on, 
right? That, it can be overwhelming. Now listen, the belt of truth acts like an internal GPS that continually directs you to your true north, okay? The belt of truth, if it, if it, is, if it is the gospel and it is close and it is the first and primary thing that, that is true about you and, and, and is true for you, it will point you to your next step. You won't necessarily know where the journey's going. You won't necessarily know in all the dust in the cloud, but you will know your next step. See, the gospel isn't just God's plan to redeem individuals. It's God's plan to redeem and restore the entire world, right? When Jesus rose from the dead, he, he opened the way for each one of us to be justified by his grace through faith. But he also inaugurated a whole new humanity, a humanity that's marked not by the rebellion of our first parents, but, but by the obedience of our, of our second parent, right? The second Adam, the, the, the second representative of the human race, right? He, he inaugurated a new humanity, a people who would be his body spiritually, a people who metaphorically are called his bride, a people who are his kingdom. The gospel is the good news that God's love can restore, redeem and restore me as an individual, but it's also the good news that God's love can and will redeem and restore the whole world. The church has thrived most when it is most free to pursue this goal, when it keeps the clarity of its mission clear. It knows uh, what hill it's supposed to be pursuing, right? Listen, our goal as believers is never to get too comfortable in this world, right? That, that actually undercuts our ability to stay focused on our goal moving forward in truth, right? We were never called to get, to get too in, integrated into the systems of this world, to put too much trust in the wealth of this world, to, to, to subtly start pursuing all the comforts of this world. We are citizens of the world to come. We are citizens of the kingdom that is here and is coming, right? We, we are citizens of this new kingdom. We are part of this new humanity, and that is our primary identity, right? We are strangers and sojourners, as Peter says, in this world. We are citizens of a heavenly country, and our king has not endorsed any worldly power to represent him. You catch that? We're citizens of a, of a heavenly country, and our king has not endorsed any worldly power to represent him. We are called um, to do good in this world, right? We are called to live for, for good, for, for our, our neighbors, for our communities, for our country, right? That's part of the gospel call is to love, and when we act in love, we are acting in good, right? But we are, we are called to be in the world, but we are not called to be of the world, right? Parties, politicians, platforms that say, you must follow us to follow God. Y'all, that's a satanic lie. That is just a satanic lie, right? The gospel goal is not to gain more power in this world. The gospel goal is, is not to uh, defeat people in this world. The gospel goal is to love even as I am loved. 
The gospel goal is to obey the great commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is the heart of the gospel call. That is the heart of God's plan to redeem and restore. God has loved us so that we can in turn love him and love others. Love, right? Now, if I love, I am going to get involved in a lot of things that align with that love. There are going to be times when, when my love for people calls me to, to advocate for them, to speak for them, even to fight for them because they're suffering under injustice. There are times that, that my love might call me to become politically engaged and motivated, right? That's all good because it is my love that motivates me and my ultimate goal is in love to see others flourish in the goodness of life, right? So, so my love is going to call me to get engaged in all these other battles, but these other battles are not my primary battle. As soon as those secondary battles become my primary battle, I have strayed from the gospel. I am no longer fighting on the right hill. I am no longer fighting in the right armor, and I am no longer fighting in the right strength. I will end up heading the wrong way. Listen, the gospel calls me to love, and that will at times call, call me to align myself with, with social or political uh, efforts, agendas, actions. But those social and political agendas and actions are not my primary call. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and I am called to live out that identity in the citizen, in the, in the, in, as a citizen of man, right? So I need to keep that straight, or I'll wear the wrong armor, end up doing more harm than I, than I do good. I, I, and let me just tell you something. You are not called to find a hill to die on. Or to, here's a, we, we are called to find a hill to die on. You are not called to find a hill to kill on. I hear people say that all the time, man. Well, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. And I'm like, it looks to me like you're actually doing a lot more killing than dying, right? We follow a Savior who found a hill to die on. That's love. And, and there is a hill to die on, and that's love. And, and sometimes that means we're going to lay down our lives like some of the great martyrs in our own country who, who fought for the good of others and laid down their lives um, so that others might be blessed, right? They found a hill to die on. Not because that hill was their primary hill, but because love drove them, right? Love leads us to, to lay down our lives for the good of others. It is pride and shame that calls us to take up our weapons to try to destroy others. Third point, the gospel protects us from fighting the wrong battles with the wrong weapons. The gospel protects us from fighting the wrong battles with the wrong weapons. Listen, this, this world is a mess of injustice, isn't it? It just is. The, the more you read about the world, the more it breaks your heart. It is filled with violence, abuses of power, personal abuses of power, relational abuses of power, systemic abuses of power. It is full of deceitful manipulations, people who, who say one thing and are completely motivated and acting in a completely different way, filled with hypocrisy and, and celebrated by, by people who, who share that same hypocrisy. It is filled with injustice. How in the world are we supposed to be able to navigate this mess and know which battles are worth engaging? How are we supposed to navigate this mess and know which hill is worth laying down our life on? Because everywhere you turn, there's another injustice. Everywhere you turn, there's, there's another problem. Listen, the answer is the same. The answer is love. 
love is your internal GPS. It not only keeps you pointed to your true north, it, it helps you identify the waypoints along the way, the ones that you are supposed to stop at, pay attention to, and invest yourself in, right? We're always called to love our neighbor. Who's my neighbor? The word means near one, right? First and primarily, we are called to love the people who are near us, right? We shouldn't be focused on, on a, uh, a, an issue that, that is global or, I'm not saying that's not important. I'm saying God won't call you to focus on things that are more globally oriented, but you can't do it at the expense of the ones that are near you, completely ignoring the suffering that's around you. You are to love those who are near you. Their problems are your problems. Their pains are your pains. That's what love is. You are to love your neighbor. You don't get to pick your neighbor, right? Because if you're only picking your neighbor because you like them or you feel passionate about them, you don't love them. You love yourself and your passion. You're expending it where, where you enjoy expending it. Love the one who is near you. Your internal GPS helps you uh, get clarity in the chaos, your internal GPS also helps you get clarity on how you're supposed to engage. If you hear a battle call to come and destroy your enemy before they destroy you, that's not a gospel call. If you hear a battle call to be afraid that God is going to lose, we're going we're to lose unless you act or vote or speak or, or support in a very specific way, that's not a gospel call. Listen, the gospel doesn't call us through fear. Fear is not a gospel motivation, right? Fear is a manipulative power of worldly power, right? The gospel doesn't call us in fear. It calls us out of fear. The gospel doesn't call us in hatred to despise people, right? That, that's not a gospel call. That, that, is, that is a worldly call of, of pride where we look down on others and we despise others and we feel justified in seeking to silence or destroy others, right? Gospel never calls us through hatred. The gospel never calls us through self-protection, how do I put my needs first, my concerns first? How do I protect my comfort, my investment, my future? That's not the call of love. The call of love is, is how do I bless you, right? The, the call of love isn't how do I destroy myself, right? I'm going to love others as I love myself. It's not, it's not this, this poverty gospel where I need to abuse myself. to show, No, it's, it's I want you to be loved in the same way I'm loved. I, I want you to enjoy what I enjoy, Right? The gospel call is not self-protection, it's self-giving, right? The gospel call isn't defeat the enemy, right? Not even in our passage are we being called to defeat the enemy. We're being called to stand against the schemes that would lay us low. It is in standing that we honor the strength of the Lord. It is in standing that we become a witness to the community around us. It is in standing and letting people see a people rooted and grounded in love and acting in love that we become the embodiment of the kingdom of God, an invitation to the gospel. The gospel is not simply a message of personal salvation. It is about a lifestyle. It is about this identity of being loved and moving out in love. And it is when we stand in that identity that we withstand the evil day and we stand against the schemes of the devil. And it is when we stand in that identity that people will start asking us about the hope that drives us. 
because they'll see something radically different. The gospel doesn't see other enemies, other humans as enemies at all. They're not the battlefield or the mission field. God doesn't call us to a hill to kill on. He calls us to a hill to die on because God calls us to love. There will be political and social activities where we seek to share God's love in word and share God's love by living out the truth of that word, the love that we've received in our giving, right? We will advocate for others passionately, but we will keep our gospel call primary to love God with our heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we do that, we will be able to discern the schemes of the enemy. If we do that, we will be able to discern the direction we should take and the next step we should take, even if we don't understand everything around us. And we will discern if we are being tempted to take up the wrong weapons and to fight the wrong battle. We are called to love. Because if we put on the belt of truth, it will, it will determine not only what battles we fight, but how we fight them. Let's be a people of the gospel. All right, let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you uh, that, that you have given us this incredible power in the gospel. And the power, Lord, is love. It unleashes the experience and the profound transformative effects of love being unconditionally, irre irre irreversibly and, 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 and unreservedly loved by you with an infinite love, an unconditional love called grace that, man, we open our hearts to that love, undo our pride in that love, erase our shame in that love, make us bold in that love, make us drunk on that love, make us rich in that love. Because when we are, we are strong. And then, Lord, free us to move out in that love because having our courage strengthened by, by that kind of love gives us the strength and the boldness to love as we ought. Lord, we are so weak if we are simply settling for knowing true things instead of experiencing the power of truth. We are so weak if we are just concerned with being right instead of embodying love. Lord, deepen our experience, Spirit, deepen our experience of your love that we might move forward in that transformative experience of sharing that love with others. We pray this in the glorious and beautiful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. We will now continue worshiping through communion and through song. y'all we're all got yeah you guys thanks for joining us today i hope you have a wonderful day and uh and y'all seriously seriously let's drink deeply of the love of god so that we are freed by the love of god to love others in ways that are beautiful this is this is the beautiful blessing of the gospel Go out in that blessing. Have a great day.